Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. And so... <laughs> Time is a, a construct. <laughs> so true. Like being sued for copyright. Like being sued for copyright infringement. It's a thing. <laughs> you know what else is a construct? Nuclear families. Am I right? Ooh. Let's go. Is that, uh, is that a take? A takey-wakey take? I think it's just a segue. That sounds like it was a great really segue and take. Yeah, it, it, w- it would have been much better if we would have rolled with it. But now, we, we have, <laughs> now that we're really dissecting now that we we're it, we're sort of rolling it. with it in it's, a it's, sense. Instead, it's just right. that tweet of like the three people dancing to the one dude holding a boombox on the balcony of his apartment. Yeah, it's like my three friends yeah. liking my shit, more or less. <laughs> we are our own biggest fans <laughs> and only fans, you could say. Uh, speaking of which, thank you very much for listening to Try Love. I'm Jason. I'm Cody. I'm Harry. Uh, and we have a guest today. Please introduce yourself, young man. Young man. Wow. Uh, I'm Eric, and apparently <laughs> like I'm, I'm young now, so... I'm getting like you younger. put on an octave voice for that one. Young man. Mm. <laughs> Look, when I'm, in, when I'm in front of a mic now, I've been conditioned to sort of just lower it a little bit. It's like, terrible, isn't it? It's, it just is what it is. I'll add, like, I'll add a bunch of bass to whatever you say next. That's fair. Just make me sound like one of the... Uh, one of the Autobots or Decepticons in the new Transformers movies. Sam Witwicky. Yeah, there you go. I'll never pull it off as well. Not the guy who Prime, Prime's voice. I forget his name, but Phil I... Phil uh, Lamar. It's not Phil Lamar. I know, I have no idea. He's been doing it since I think like it's the 60s, like, right? I want to say it's Peter something. Just Skarsgård. I know it's not Hugo Weaving, but does he have a voice role in those movies? Hugo Weaving? Yeah. I don't think so. It would be a, probably a lot cooler if he did. Yeah. Uh, John Turturro does. Uh, he has a, a real role in that movie. Yeah. And uh, starting saying. in, what's the second one called? Not Dark of the Moon. Revenge Dark of the Moon was the, the third Fallen. One. Revenge Fallen. of the Fallen. Uh, my mistake. Hugo Weaving is actually Megatron. Oh, oh really? Mm-hmm. The opposite of Optimus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The opposite. <laughs> two, two sides of the same coin. Workshop that one a little bit. Two sides of the same cyber coin. This is a bit funny podcast. Ever, the Evercube, what is the name of it? The Allspark. Allspark. Right? Wow, I didn't get either part of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a much better name. You pulled two like cool sounding like halves of cyberpunk words out of a hat and just threw them together. Evercube. It was a decent guess. Evercube. I mean, that's what cyberpunk names are. <laughs> exactly. Right? They're just amalgamation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, today we are rolling on our... Stop laughing at me for getting down to business. I know. Uh, today we are rolling on our Coen Brothers... Series. I uh, got. We already covered Fargo, and we're covering. Or and uh, the man wasn't there. Right. And today we're going to be talking about raising Arizona. Uh, does anybody want to read my write up, or should I just deliver this? You got the write up. I got the write up. You did. Uh, put in the it's effort. a short plot summary. Ooh! Mm, wow! Sharp paper. Uh, Ow! <laughs> be careful with that. Go to the nurse's office, young man. <laughs> uh, young it, man. <laughs> H.I. High McDonough, played by Nicolas Cage, is a recidivist criminal in Tempe, Arizona. When he falls in love with one of the prison guards, Ed, played by Holly Hunter, he goes str- he 
he resolves to go straight and start his new life as a law-abiding citizen. Uh, High and Ed's family planning hits a speed bump when they find out that Ed can't bear children, leading them to hatch a plot to steal one of five newborn children from Tempe's most affluent family, the Arizonas. Uh, With Junior in tow, they must stay one step ahead of the Arizonas, High's old prison buddies, a bounty hunter who rides with death, and, worst of all, the mounting pressures of life under Reagan-era capitalism to carve out their new life as a family. I like that summary because there's a little take action in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, no basic takes here. All acidic. The only thing I would add to that is they also try to adopt, but they can't because High has a criminal background, which is a great a great flavor. I did consider it, but okay. it's not like plot. Okay. I mean, it is plot. I don't know. Yeah, it, it I works d- into the the idea that these are disenfranchised. People, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's part yeah. of the character. Yeah. Uh, so this is like this is the only. Um, Maybe not the only, but one of the strongest and most obviously comedic films by the Coen Brothers I've ever seen. It took me by surprise that it was like this directly funny with not a lot, not a whole lot of the sardonic tone that some of their other oh, films you, have. Oh, you hadn't seen or heard of it before? I had heard of it because I skipped a showing of it at the Trilon last year when they paired it, paired it with Wild at Heart during mm-hmm. the Cage Marathon. Um, uh, I saw both of those. It was great. Thanks, Trilon. Yeah, uh, big ups. Shout out to Trilon. Big ups to the small theater. Shout outs to Mr. Trilon. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, do you have any shout-outs? John Trilon himself. Um, <laughs> don't know if that's a real person. That's actually the character Hugo Weaving played in uh, Transformers. Was John Trilon. Oh, okay. John Trilon. I mean, that seems like he would be in He there. made a cameo in Tron, the second one. What was that called? Was he Tron s- the Grid? Was he Tron Legacy. Like, Tron Legacy. A side Jeff Bridges in that one, then? Wait, when, when was Hugo Weaving in Tron Legacy? I've been shitting out my mouth for the past, oh. like, minute and a half. 26 it's years? gross. Whoa! Oh. I mean, acidic takes. This is how I got through homeschool. Was I homeschooled? Homeschool? Wait, what? Uh, what did everybody think of this movie? In Ohio? Wait, <laughs> time out. <laughs> These are just jokes that no one will understand. I mean, I don't. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think it's really interesting looking at this, like I guess historically in terms of Coen Brothers, because like their first film was before this, which was Blood Simple, which I haven't seen, but I've gotten the gist of. And then to transition to something so wholly different mm-hmm. is yeah, kind of uh, wild. Cody and I watched Blood Simple last night at the Trilon. Shout out to Trilon. Shout out to the Trilon. Uh, and there are could scarcely be two more different movies. I feel like, except that they both take place in the American Southwest. Uh, they are two very different movies with very different sensibilities. I was a big fan of. <coughs> excuse me. I was. I didn't love love this movie. I did like it, but uh, that is one thing that sticks with me. Is just like how, what kind of chutzpah it takes to throw together a movie like this three after three years after you're like critically lauded, uh, very serious, uh, noiry, violent debut film. Like and then just go hard left with comedy. Was this their second movie? I think this was just their second film. From what I saw, it was their second. Film. Yeah, that's wild. Which is cr- and they worked with a lot of the same people. The same uh, I forget who did the score, but Barry Sonnenfeld did all the cinematography, just like in Blood Simple, uh, which is just crazy to think about. Uh, Carter uh, Burwell did the score. Yeah, um, I believe he did Blood Simples as well. I, I know that he's yeah, a I think you're right. Collaborator with mm-hmm. I think he did Miller's Crossings as well. So, yeah. The only thing that surprised me about uh, Raising Arizona in terms of, like, the Cohenness of it was that Frances McDormand didn't have a bigger part. And though Holly Hunter does give, like, a hugely, like, a great performance in this movie, I was asking myself, like, just realistically, why was Frances McDormand not the main, like, the female lead? Because they got Holly Hunter. She's so good I, in this I, movie. I, I, I totally agree with that. But, like, from a filmmaker's standpoint, by the time, I think they were already married by, the, by this point. Mm-hmm. Now. Is I it Joel so. is, that's married to... 
I forget which one's actually married to Frances uh-huh. McDormand, uh, but like she was already a uh, like staple. married to one a staple of their uh, movies, um, and, and with good reason, with yeah, great yeah. reason. She's fantastic. Uh, what would this movie have looked like if Frances McDormand had been this main character? She would rather have uh, actors, uh, artists employed by their relationships and not necessarily on the merit of their talent. Is that that's what I'm hearing? Okay. <laughs> yes. Shout out to Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand, who are both amazing and yeah, not competing uh, in any way. I really way. like <laughs> Frances McDormand's role in this movie. Um, I think it's really funny. She has one scene, I think, uh, mm-hmm. when they go to visit at the uh, the trailer park. Um, I love this movie. I've seen it a million times uh, because it's one of my dad's favorite Coen Brothers movies. We really? used to rent it a lot at Blockbuster. Uh, <clears throat> my dad used to call me and Charlie... Um, young sportsman a lot <laughs> because uh the scene where he brings nathan jr um home and they're showing him around he's giving him a tour of their their trailer home and he says now here young sportsman is the, uh, television or whatever and That's that right. really stuck with my dad uh there's a lot of really great um lines in this movie i wish i had written more of them down but there are almost too many to write down um, it is really rapid fire yeah and just i think that this is maybe one of my favorite uh, written Coen Brothers movies. I think that their writing really um, sings in their comedies. Uh, oh Brother, Where Art Thou is another one uh, that is one of my favorite written movies. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie has a, uh, a, I think we said 11 minutes, Cody? Yeah. In, uh, yeah. An 11 minute monologue intro that sort of sets the stakes of the universe and uh, um, High's journey in it, uh, by the end of which he's married to um, Ed and they have their plan hatched. It's sort of the entire first act of the movie takes place in this 11-minute monologue where he's in and out of prison. Um, That monologue is, like, one of my favorite intros to a movie ever, I think. Um, And it it literally all happens before the title drop. There's a Mm -hmm. title drop, Raising Arizona, at, like, 11 minutes. And I think until the end of the movie, there is no more um, narration. There's there's book-ended narration, and then there's a letter that he writes uh, before the final act. I think the only uh, just me thinking offhand I think the maybe the only other uh, instance of voiceover work from High's character is uh, when he's talking about the dream he has, about how they have baby napped this right. child and maybe it's guilt, maybe it's something else, but he like has uh, this dream where he just fears that he's like He's having this vision that he just like set loose this uh, like rider of the apocalypse, which turns out to be prophetic because he yes. in fact has like the the um, the rider that he's imagining is uh, Leonard Smalls, played by Randall Tex Combe. It's so funny to me that Randall Tex Combe is a better name for that rider than. Leonard Smalls. You would think that Leonard Smalls would be the actor's name, right? I read that Lenny Smalls is a reference to another character from I forget what movie. Oh. I'd have really? to look this up. I don't know why I didn't find this out before I started with you guys. Uh, if we want another piece of trivia to kind of fill in the gap here. It's that the um, guy's got name is actually Cobb and not Comb. Uh, and we we're all just letting Harry say Comb. Yeah, I mean, I like that. Comb as a last name is pretty it's cool, It's a pretty too. good name. Um, no, it's uh, circling back to the amazing uh, Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand. They were actually roommates uh, together at the Yale School of Drama. What? And oh, got along wild. so well that they lived together uh, for a little bit in New York City after graduating. So no hard feelings, hopefully. I love that very, very much. Yeah. That is really cool. Uh, Holly Hunter and Nick Cage both put, uh, put in 
two of my favorite performances ever. Just um, dyna- like way overblown at all the right moments. Like even yeah. Holly Hunter gets some really weirdly comedic like reaction She's shots. She's amazing. In this it movie. is crazy. Yeah. Uh, the last movie I watched that she was in was Broadcast News, which actually came out this same year. Oh, yeah. yeah. This was a huge year for both of them. Uh, Moonstruck came out this year, too, oh. for Luke Cage, which... Luke Cage? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he, is named after, he named himself after Luke Cage, so that that's a uh, decent That's pull. valid, but, yeah. Uh, Speaking of what he named himself after, I didn't know this, I looked it up, but that he was related to Francis Ford Coppola, mm-hmm. and like that's part of why he changed his name, mm-hmm. which yeah, I think is... Yeah, I think is, he's uh, Coppola's nephew, right? Yes. Yeah. What does that make him to Sofia Coppola? Does that make him uh, a cousin, or... Makes him the godfather. Mm. It doesn't. Shout out to the Don't like that. Uh, Charlie, <laughs> the take that Charlie wanted to contribute to this episode was that uh, all of Nicolas Cage's roles are early in his career. His best roles. Uh, he had Raising Arizona, Moonstruck, and uh, Valley Girl were all like crazy young Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I agree with that, but I'm a huge Nicolas Cage fan. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean like kind of disagreeing with that and going back to uh, Leonard Smalls, like shout outs to the inspiration to Mandy 30 years prior. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I was going to say Mandy is like the big antithesis to that. The hypothesis for me. Randy. 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 Yikes. Uh, Yeah, Leonard Smalls is the Anton Chigurh of this movie. There's always an Anton Chigurh, which is really funny. Like in almost every single one of these uh, movies, um, our brother or art thou has Satan himself. <laughs> um, Blood Simple, the first one has, uh, I can't remember the... M. Emmett Walsh. M. Emmett Walsh, who is yeah. also in, in Raising Arizona. Movie, yes. Yeah, he has a cameo as the uh, foreman, right? At yeah. the sheet metal factory. At, where, uh, at the place or where Highworks. he's trying to like reform from his criminal ways and right. Right. hold down a steady job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we should stop just... <laughs> no, we can, we can do whatever. I haven't heard yeah. what Eric thinks about this movie. For, well... So it was really interesting because, um, you know, as a process to peek behind the curtain a little bit, there were two movies that we watched before coming in. and You can't I, reveal our secrets. <laughs> well, I will say I watched the first one before this one. Oh. And so I came into this one and I was like, huh, I had a lot more interesting things to say about the first one. But with this, I just have more questions than, like, profound insights. Hell yeah. Um, I, I, I guess as far as, like, anything... Well, I'll, I'll start off by saying I did like the movie. I think it was really good and uh, fun. I think I was tunneling in too much, trying to like dig as much deep meaning out of it as I could, and yeah. I think that was a mistake. Mm. Um, That's another thing I want to talk about later, uh, is looking back at that movie, like, this was my first time after seeing plenty, not all, but plenty of Cohen films, and like trying to apply what I had learned from their later filmmaking to an earlier piece was really really very uncomfortable so keep going right well and so like you know there's the whole where i tried to dig out the most meaning i guess i would say was like um specifically with like the introduction sequence where high is doing his sort of introductory monologue and like looking at how maybe that's saying something about how they feel about the prison system and Mm -hmm. recidivism Mm -hmm. um and then as far as like the, the next, like, big moment honestly didn't really hit me until the end, which is where it's like, oh, this is like a journey of people, you know, seeing something they want and seeing that the grass is greener on the other side, but then seeing really what the costs are to those things and realizing that maybe we're not ready for this sort of thing, like... 
Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you brought up that um, <clears throat> applying the Cohen sensibilities backward to these films is interesting and difficult um, because I don't really have a lens to read this movie through the way that I um, often do for, for Coen Brothers movies, um, like the way that I did for uh, Fargo or The Man Who Wasn't There, um, I, which we sort of analyzed from Buddhist and then existentialist or mm -hmm. absurdist perspectives. Sorry, this sounds so pretentious. No, but like you um, said, there wasn't part. There wasn't that kind I of framing. I think because for... I'm maybe too close to it, this one, I've seen it too many times. Uh, okay, but uh, I, it helped me quite a bit to apply Cohen sensibilities backward to this movie. Um, this is obviously such a farce, and uh, the the farcical nature of it really informs, I think, the the sort of themes and. Um, Overall, not just on like a tone basis, but on actually like a larger basis of what this movie has, quote unquote, to say. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, I still agree with Eric. Like the way to approach this movie isn't to like really dig into it, right? It's mm. kind of to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like much more of a. I mean, uh, we're just gonna uh, throw back the curtain even more. Like we're doing Miller's Crossing right after this, and that is a much more conventional like wade into movie. Mm -hmm. Like we're gonna like sort of dig into that movie, right? Whereas this movie, it doesn't uh, resist readings like that, but there is a sense in which, as you read it, you kind of feel like you're missing the forest for the trees. Yeah, you're sort exactly. of like trying to dig into this like a, like a literary exercise. Yeah, um, yeah I, definitely. I agree. Again, not to say, like, like, that's not me being lazy and that's not me saying that those readings wouldn't be valid. I'm sure there's lots of good scholarship about this movie. Um, that just didn't feel like the right way to approach this movie to me. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, going in, I had like much the same feeling. I, I got like, there's always something in a Coen Brothers film to see, to like pick at, to um, to interpret from it. And the more and more I thought about it that way, the more and more I found out that I wasn't actually liking it. Mm -hmm. So like when I backed off from that a little bit, when I realized that like as a, I would go so far as to call this a parody movie, that it like it in that defies a lot of that framing a lot of that thought process right yeah uh parody is a really strong word to use i think because in in my opinion like that you could read almost all coen brothers movies through that uh idea i think that the coen brothers uh we brought this up a little bit in fargo and uh when cody and i watched blood simple i thought about this a lot uh coen brothers movies are really interested in what actually happened sort of behind the headline i think that then in a lot of ways a lot of their their writing and this is totally speculative i'm talking on my ass as always uh but <clears throat> there's this idea in which it's like we have the headline we have the the sort the story as reported uh whether that's a crime as it usually is for coen brothers or a farce or something else and then we're going to dig into actually looking at who these people are and how this ridiculous set of circumstances happen you can almost feel them re reverse engineer their story out of that mm -hmm. especially with something like Blood Simple or something like Fargo. Uh, Fargo said it was based on true events. You could almost see them saying the same bullshit here, where it's like, okay, like you can almost see the the thought, like these are this is a couple that stole a child. Why did they steal the child? What does it mean that they stole the child? What would possess them to do that? Mm -hmm. And you sort of reverse engineer, and and <coughs> through that process, you get at uh, what I think they have to say about human beings and, and what sort of. Um, the, the engine that that, uh, that powers human motivation uh, in, a, in a really interesting way and in a really funny and, and silly way. Mm -hmm. um, and how, how does it do that, are you saying? Like, what part, what tools does it use to, like, tell that story behind the story? I'm just trying to catch up to where you sorry, are. Um, 
Yeah, well, I in in this movie specifically, I think that the tone, that the farcical tone, and the fact that we it's a POV movie through High's perspective, um, we get to see sort of like this this incomplete uh, lack of understanding view of uh, criminality and recidivism and um, class. You brought up a really good point about class um, in this movie in that you see a lot of different perspectives on class, right? You see uh, a lower working class or um, impoverished class, Mm -hmm. um, disenfranchised. Sorry, I pointed at Cody. Cody made this point. Uh, Do you want to speak? Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think there's definitely some intersection here between not just class but also like um, I'm really glad you brought up point of view because this movie would be a lot different from the uh, not the John Goodman brothers the, the last name is Snotes holy shit the Snotes <laughs> brothers um, like if this was a movie about their pursuit of this child versus uh, the McDonough's pursuing this child but um, like through the creation of the McDonough family through their household uh, we see them um, like, like they are so tonally and spatially different from um, like Glenn and Dot, and then also the Arizonas. Um, like contrasting the look we get into the Arizona household, it's humongous. Uh, the um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Arizona um, are sitting in the what I assume is the family room, um, not really being attentive to themselves or their children. Their children are on the other side of their house, um, and like the McDonoughs are like very intimately engaged in what the others are doing. Um, They're sleeping in the same room. There's that sort of like Mm -hmm. proximity factor. They live in a trailer home, so it's like literally one room, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, basically. Um, And then (laughs) the uh, scene with Glenn and Dot um, coming over for, you know, tea and biscuits was infuriating, but also hilarious. Um, And like it showcases what this movie does super well as a parody. Um, Just like uh, children nearly literally setting this house on fire um <laughs> they're just they're writing graffiti all over they're beating the shit out of high's car right one of my favorite bits is when uh i think it's gail no mm. that's john goodman um i'm sorry it's uh glenn mm-hmm. sam mcmurray he, he's talking about how smart his kid is and he goes look this look at how smart this kid is and then he, he picks up a bunch of like peanut m&ms or something yeah. and he goes hey hit the deck and then he just like whips these peanut m&ms <laughs> at his kid and his kid just drops uh like he's used to that like it's <laughs> In somebody else's house, also? Yeah. Um, I would like to take a brief sidebar, um, if you'll all indulge me. Um, There's a scene where Glenn is throwing, I'm using air quotes here for those listening, throwing these peanut M&Ms up in the air and catching them in his mouth. Mm. I didn't see any peanut M&Ms make any, like, airborne moves, but I did hear the sound editing, like of like food going in his mouth i i must have missed this i want to know it's just like when he's in conversation with high in the kitchen i'm (laughs) i'm afraid to know the answer to this i on one hand i really want it to just be a mystery but also i want to know did they sound edit those going in his mouth (laughs) and he was just faking the shit out of it or we should completely miss 4k restoration and go frame by frame to figure this shit out i would love that that'll be the sub episode of this podcast as they'll do i'm going to embed an episode right now in which we discover try and figure this out this will be a new podcast within the podcast (laughs) give give me a mark yeah the imdb trivia section had nothing to offer on this shout out to imdb trivia um an otherwise great source but of this is news just something and you, facts. You noticed while you I were just, watching. Yeah. I, I looked and I was like, wait a second. On film too. You saw this on thirty five, right? Yes, yeah, at the at the trilogue. You have a sharp eye. Yeah. So that you, was a year ago. I mean we watched it. It didn't 
play here again this year, did it? I don't yeah, know. So. I, I didn't see it. I watched it at home. I didn't see it at the trial one or anything else. We did last year. Uh, oh, okay. oh, I didn't. Oh, oh. oh, you went? Oh, I didn't get invited. That's oh. Yikes. No, you were busy. <laughs> Shout out to my sadness and anxiety. <laughs> and the trial on. And, and the trial on. And the trial on. Uh, this, I'm going to... Sorry le- to derail that a lot. <laughs> That's fine. It actually almost plays to... Um, I didn't notice that, but I probably would have t- taken note of it if I had, because it plays to that idea that I had of this movie being like abject parody. Mm-hmm. Like and which it absolutely is. Yeah, like I, I I can see it as a comedy in its own right that the Coens just like wrote these things as were like intended to be funny. Uh, but there are just many moments at which like you would expect a normal comedy to play out a certain way and they've inserted some like weird like tiny even like like when uh, it's high is fighting is he fighting the the apocalyptic? Is he fighting? Uh, Are you talking Smalls about the tattoo it? here? No, no, no. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. About, it's um, oh, it's in point. his it's in his own home. I forget who he's fighting. He's fighting. Uh, he's fighting John. Go- Gale. John Go- he's, he's fighting, fighting Gale. Gale. Yeah, and yeah. and, uh, Evel and, too, and he goes for like an, he goes scenes. for like an overhand like, like crush. A, a Dragon Ball Z like like, like double. He's, g- he's going to throw this guy into the ground, uh-huh. and he like reaches up over his head and scrapes his knuckles on the textured ceiling on the popcorn ceiling, which is basically a symbol of. Suburban America, totally, it's so yes. universally recognized. Um, uh, but like, even moment, tiny little moments like that, just take like take the shit out of any like uh, concept of comedy that you had in that moment. And they're like, wouldn't it be weird if like he scraped his knuckles on the roof? Like, I don't. I mean, like, like I think that that uh, so much of the highest humor though is coming into absurd conflict with the expectations of. Uh, happy suburban life, right? And and how out of step they are with both what he wants and how reality seems to present itself, right? Like, like the idea that that um, like so much of the humor of Frances McDormand's character Dot is how her perceptions of reality are so ridiculously divorced from what is. Where like she's talking about how she wants more kids because kids are too old to cuddle. Meanwhile, her kids are running rampant, destroying this house that they came to visit. And Glenn is talking about swinging, and they don't seem to have any love lost between them. And so like, yeah, I, I think this movie is like extremely a piss take on the idea of the middle class, the mm-hmm. idea of like nuclear families like uh um cody said in his very astute um transition that we (laughs) butchered that might make the podcast or might not um but uh i think that one of the biggest ways that this movie does that is like i said it's it's a first person pov movie more than almost any of the other coen brothers movies Hmm. it's framed that way um if this was a novel it would be written in first person and high would be the narrator because he is in the in the first act and so like i said this is his world we're just living in it so to speak we sort of see it through his perspective and so we get his sort of warped and incomplete understanding of how things affect people um, which is what foregrounds the nature versus nurture argument of this movie so much. Um, this is a movie that's obsessed with the notion of latent criminality um, and of uh, genes being bad um, or uh, evil and the idea that High can't help but be a criminal because it's in his nature um, and they play with that quite a bit and so uh, they end up ended up being barren. The, one of the best lines in the movie that Aaron brought up is that um, biology and the prejudices of others conspired to keep us childless. <laughs> he said that. 
Aaron's not here today. Okay, I was going to say, I thought you misnamed your friend for a second. Okay. Did you think he was talking about you? No, Eric. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Common mistake. (laughs) It's interesting that you should bring up perspective because uh, just in making this movie, apparently what the Coen brothers did, like they had uh, a hard time... um, Sometimes they would run into writer's block with this movie, and w- uh, what they did was they threw. Keep uh, going. I yeah, was giving uh, thumbs up because I'm not I was great, ex- I'm not excited. Great receiving visual stig- or, uh, stimulation on mic. Oh, really? Get, How about this? I get. I, get wi- <laughs> I am. I am melting. Um, but they wrote the film, and then they thought, or they d- they created the characters, and then thought, how would the characters like imagine this world? Like for really? the, for example, like the whole conceptualization of. Um, Leonard Smalls, the uh, demon-bound, hell-hunting like, bounty hunter. like a literalization of High's anxieties, right? Yeah, and of his criminal past yeah. and all of his... Coming like, back coming, to mm-hmm. haunting. Co- co- conflicting with his past, trying to be a better person sort of thing. Uh, instead of, like, designing and creating that character in a way that they thought would be, like, appropriate or fearsome or intimidating, they were like, let's perceive how High would have thought of this character, would have imagined this character, would have prophesied this character... Uh, and that really plays to what you were saying earlier. I was going to say I very I like this a lot because it's perfect for my personal reading. It, it's not something it's not something <laughs> that I picked up when I was watching the movie, but then in retrospect, it t- totally makes sense. Like how zany and crazy all these characters and this whole world really are. It's because they were creating it through the eyes of characters they had already created, so they had license to just do what the fuck mm-hmm. ever. Right. Well, and now that you say that, and going back to like what Harry said a lot of the narration comes in the beginning but there's also narration at the end when mm-hmm. he's in that last dream sequence so it's almost like he was reading through this book that is him and then the excerpt that he's actually taking us through is the movie proper hmm. it's all no, very that that's a very uh, Super Mario Bros. 3 way to look at this that it was it was all just a stage play <laughs> that, that's generally how I look at things it's through a Super Mario <laughs> Bros. 3 lens don't, please don't look at the nuts and bolts around the walls here and the moving platforms and the curtain that comes close whereas my, my Tumblr uh, conspiracy theory reading of this movie is that uh, High McDonough is the roadrunner from Looney Tunes <laughs> whoa yeah. yeah he's the human roadrunner he has the tattoo and everything do we need to get into that now or it seems oh, like I Cody's do want to know open. who Wiley Coyote is here <laughs> Uh, I do want to give you a shout out, Jason. That is like the first video game reference in maybe all the episodes up to this point that I understand that, that have oh, made wow. it into the recording. Hey. Oh, okay. hey. I say the first video game reference that I was like, wow. I don't think that's no, true. no, there have been thousands. <laughs> yeah, I can attest that that's not accurate. Uh, <laughs> Long time listener, uh, first time fan, Eric. First time fan. First time fan fan shirts coming soon to the Trilove shop. They'll just have my face on them, so (laughs) dealer's choice if we actually want them or not. We can only get a single color print, though, so you got to choose whether you want to be orange or white or black or whatever you want to be. I mean, I think... Orange, white, black, or anything. Those are the three colors. Sorry, I'm just reading the liner notes from Michael Jackson's Black or White. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great thing to put in here. Um... (laughs) The tattoo. Sorry, no, I derailed uh, yeah. us again. I, I, if, uh, everybody, if everybody's cleared their caches of thoughts and takes, I do want to hear what you mean by oh, this I was character was joking. Uh, but um, I really like what you, what you mentioned about what High wants because I think that that like so many Coen Brothers movies, these are um, characters defined by um, unifying motivations. Um, and it's a very Coen esque unifying motivation where everybody in this movie wants to be other than they are. They, um, they all want to be 
baby owners. Right. They're they're striving, but but the baby's representative of something, right? Like mm. like in Holly Holly Hunter um, Ed's mind um, and High's mind, the baby is what's going to um, sort of be their salvation, right? Uh, is is this idea that um, when they're when they're a family, when they're united, they'll feel the way that they're supposed to feel, mm-hmm. or they'll be able to be the people that they want to be because they'll they'll be in the the right mode for that, and right. so that that those people will sort of they'll they'll become the roles that they were meant to play once they have this baby, which is why it's so hard for them that they can't be uh, baby parents, and uh, why it's so important that. Um, the reason they can't be uh, baby parents is not just because um, Ed is barren, but also because of High's past, the biology and prejudices of others. Mm-hmm. It is preventing them from joining the American dream, right? Like essentially, like the idea of a nuclear family in this movie is the is representative of um, the American dream, American happiness, everything. And uh, so the the funny piss take on this is that as they enter it. Um, through their their sort of farcical means where they steal a baby, they find out how ridiculous even that dream is, right? Like, nobody in this movie is happy. Everybody is is trying to be something that they're not. And the the institutions um, don't work the way that they're supposed to, just like they don't in any of the Coen Brothers movies. Uh, The Coen Brothers are so pessimistic about even the concept of the self that, like... The, the idea that there would be institutions that work the way they su- are supposed to is absurd and is treated as such. Um, right. Ray, the idea of like a Reagan America um, dream is hilarious to this movie. Um, I do like that. Um, I mean, I don't like it. It's, it's awful. But just like the <laughs> McDonough's uh, are the only characters here who really uh, become, I mean, you can make an argument for, I guess, Mr. Arizona as well, um, but just like actualized people as a result of their arc. Um, like, the Arizona household is very um, not, like, for all intents and purposes, not full of love. Uh, there's, like, a moment at the end where um, the McDonough's are returning the uh, Nathan Jr. And, um, like, Mr. Ar- what is his first name? Nathan, Nathan Arizona. Arizona. Nathan Arizona Sr. I just said Nathan Jr. and I asked what his father's name was. Uh, I'm a fucking moron. He also says his name, Nathan Arizona, or my name ain't Nathan Arizona. Like, <laughs> many times. Mr. Many Mr. Times. Mr. Arizona is really easy to say. Um, so Mr. Arizona, um, he uh, he has like this 15 second period where he breaks down. Uh, not like he doesn't start sobbing or anything, but the the camera like smash uh, zooms on his face, and uh, like he's talking about his wife and just kind of like equating his experience to the McDonough's experience as best he can and he just has this like really somber I do love her so and then he kind of like snaps back into it and like he's Nathan Arizona Senior Arizona Senior again Uh, to set this scene up a little bit this is the climax or sort of post-climax epilogue they uh, break back into the Arizona household to drop off Nathan Jr. because they've decided through their uh, trials and tribulations that they don't um, not that they don't deserve uh to, to keep Nathan Jr., but that the right thing to do is to return him. Um, I think on some level they, and like, it's kind of how they feel like at that point that they don't really, des- true. They don't yeah, really right. deserve each other because they're both like too similar. They've both displayed like supreme acts of selfishness mm-hmm. and like they, and, and, that's but, Ed's point, right? Right, yeah, totally. Really and, uh, no, and, but like totally like the, like the right thing to do. They also understand like 
moral implications of things. And so, yeah, they felt the right thing to do at that but, point would be to return this is, it. This isn't just uh, losing Nathan Jr. This is the dissolution of their family, mm-hmm. right? They've decided, yeah. like, the idea that we were going for, that we could be a family together, that we could overcome our natures, um, is not true. Like, we've, we've determined that that was... Uh, a faulty goal and so we're going to break up and we're going to return this baby and then they have this conversation with uh, Nathan Arizona Sr. who like has this moment of grace in yeah. this movie that uh, is crazy unexpected because up yeah. until this point he was like a uh, unabashed uh, soulless c- capitalist um, keep your damn feet off my chair uh, <laughs> he says like note, three times my favorite Nathan Arizona line is when he's describing uh, his son who was kidnapped to the FBI and he, he goes he was wearing his jammies and he said what's uh what do, what do you mean is his jammies he goes I don't I don't know they were jammies they had Yodas or shit on <laughs> <laughs> uh, um but but he convinces them uh, well he says he's not going to press charges that it's all been sort of taken care of with the return of Nathan Jr and he convinces them to sleep on it and to um, try to give their family another shot um, and he says wait for medical technology to catch up with you uh, yeah. so you can maybe have a family again which is not great but like you right. know, baby steps yeah baby steps do they uh, do hi and Ed end up splitting up is that explicit because I know that Ed says that she doesn't think that they can maintain a relationship themselves like to be a family just I mean, even that two unit the movie ends with them sleeping, sleeping on, on it, it. so yeah. I mean I, I guess we're just kind of left to wonder what a great way to end that movie then. yeah uh, I, well and there's also the dream uh, mm-hmm. and hi has two dreams in this movie and they're both prophetic dreams of the future the first one he dreams of flames and the coming of the horsemen of the apocalypse to destroy him for his transgressions <laughs> literally that's the first dream he has and the second one he dreams uh, about his, his name son. is Leonard Harry <laughs> <laughs> and uh in the second dream he dreams of uh their successful um family where they had children and the children come to visit them and they're old and happy and together and uh in a place where all families are happy and there's no strife and he says maybe it's utah uh that's the last time that's interesting. See, I took that dream in a different direction, oh, actually. Really? When I saw that, I thought that he was having a dream of, like, this is how Nathan Jr. is going to grow up because we've, like, left him back with his rightful family and, like, we've realized the error of our ways. And because of that, he's going to be able to live this nice life. Well, but he is also in that dream. They, they, um,. He has the dream where Nathan Arizona is the high school running back, and he's mm-hmm. a star, and his horizons have been broadened, even though he doesn't know how they've been broadened, but he's a, he's a better person for his experience with them. Um, and then I think that they have his the dream of themselves, but that's an interesting... Well, so, so that's why I thought it was, because I looked at it all as one continuous dream. And so, like, because they didn't show the faces of the older folks at the end, like, that would have been Nathan Jr. and his future mm. wife. Mm. That was how I read that. Huh. I didn't uh, interpret it that way. Yeah, that's a much that's much longer tale ending than that's I interesting. Really, yeah, I like that. Um, which is it's interesting because this movie is is um, more sent. I Coen Brothers comedies and, and maybe this is a misread on my part, but they seem more sentimental uh, and ultimately optimistic than than a lot of the Coen Brothers dramas. They seem to flail in that respect for me, like that they do end up on the side of sincerity and cordiality and like very optimistic, hopeful notes. But, like, again, throughout this movie, I had a hard time perceiving the movie as very sincere just because it did seem like a lot of their funniest ideas jammed into, like, a crazy plot. Yeah. That's just my take on the on the structure of it, specifically. Yeah. I think that the story it tells is something greater than that. I, uh, you know, and... 
Yeah, I was going to say, I had a really similar sort of feeling that you did, Jason, where it was like the the kind of that sort of sentimentality, that heartwarmingness of that Nathan Arizona scene at the end was like this weird, like it threw me through a loop when that happened because everything before that is just like this fucking dumpster fire of like <laughs> weird circumstances and mishaps and then all of a sudden there's just this nice scene at the end and I was like yeah specifically Nathan Arizona's moment of grace right because, uh, at, up until this point in the movie he's he's a person who exploits the dream of that grace right where he he's a, a capitalist who's selling the idea of a dream he's selling unpainted furniture for your nuclear family, and if you can find lower prices, his name ain't Nathan Arizona. But that seemed to be a facade where he's not particularly kind to his wife, he doesn't seem to care about his children very much, um, but there's that shift that he that he experiences when he sees um, High and Ed. And maybe the fact that he sees them for what they are is what triggers that shift, which which could lend credence to the idea that that what they're doing um, and who they are as people is are still fundamentally um, worthwhile. Right. That he's their project, so to speak, is worthwhile. So he's, sorry. he's able to see uh, high as more than a criminal. He's able to see Ed as more than a you know mom crazy or a baby crazy like uh, former cop. It's there's there's something there. Like I said, it's story wise, but like until I see the entirety of the movie, it's hard for me to put that together because it's every scene is just so like. I didn't know that the um, the car chase scene in this movie was like widely regarded as iconic and very like because it is it is like a fun scene. It's uh, so good. Setting mm-hmm. this is and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's after it's mid uh, their ownership of the baby and their uh, uh, high goes to the convenience store that he's robbed thirty times or whatever, and uh, and is. I even found myself driving past convenience stores. That weren't on the way home. <laughs> Great line. Very, very good line. Uh, they they throw it in his face later. Dale does. Where John Goodman's character Dale goes. I know you're partial to convenience stores, high, but damn it, the sun doesn't rise and set on the corner grocery. <laughs> 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 um, uh, sorry. Go ahead. No, uh, there, there are just so many colorful scenes in this movie mm-hmm. that it, like they distracted me almost uh, from, and it's speci- especially like looking back at them through a like more modern Cohen lens, it was hard for me to see the movie as like a thoughtful, heartfelt like meditation on all these things and more like just really good fun scenes stitched together. Well but had but validity in I think own, that, that we talked about that, right? We're like, yeah. this is not a movie to be taken seriously. Exactly. I think it's a, it's a movie that requires a different footing, sort right. of a different stance. In um, retrospect, I can like I can interpret the movie that way. I could watch this movie again and see like this is how I ended up feeling about it versus like this is the discussion around it. But in that first viewing, it's just a very interesting. Sure, you're just being very honest about your experience, right? In a way that I often. Why else would I record <laughs> this on my? T- uh, <laughs> to illustrate that car chase scene a little bit more, um, yeah, I also sorry, really I did not describe what no, actually happened there. No, it's I. I wanted to go into a little bit more detail because I do think that scene in its own way illustrates a sort of heartwarming vibe. Um, just because at its core, it's um, like it is. High looking to get huggies mm-hmm. for for his child, um, and obviously he's acting on old impulses. He tries to rob it. Uh, the police are called. Both the police and the sixteen-year-old kid at this convenience store are firing gun <laughs> shots. Guns and they fire them like crazy. It's like uh, we just saw Miller's Crossing too, but it's it's like that scene at the end where people are firing off like oh, literally boy. hundreds of thousands. Of rounds. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're gonna have to talk about yeah. some of those scenes for right. sure. But yeah, it's uh, like the 
I mean, by the end of it, it's, uh, you know, sirens, uh, so, ma- so many guns, so many dogs. That's like, it's, 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 it's <laughs> like guns, white picket fences, and dogs. It's uh, just it's great. It's mm. it, like, every, right, everybody is chasing after this criminal who is just like, in the end, I mean, he gets the huggies in the end, which is like, great. That's his, you know, uh, obtain yeah. the huggies moment. This is definitely the the landmark scene of the entire movie, right? And like you said, there's an arc to it, right? Because yeah. it it starts when uh, High breaks for the first time. He returns to his criminal ways to steal these huggies. He puts a, a pantyhose on his head and tries to rob the convenience store. Ed's had enough. She says that some bitch about thirty times. <laughs> yeah, drives <laughs> away, leaving him there leaving him with the bag, literally. Um, and that starts off the scene. But over the course of this scene, Ed changes her mind and mm-hmm. comes back to save him. Uh, and, and meanwhile, he uh, re- repents of his, his ways, right? He, he ends up tossing the huggies uh, to, just to try to get away to get back to his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating. You could watch the scene in abstract and sort of come away with the overarching... Uh, arc of this movie, yeah. which is like this is a it, it's fundamentally a movie about a marriage, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, and in how um, they they try to have a, a child almost to save their marriage or or to to make their marriage something, right? Well, de- like, the latter defi- for sure. They definitely do because yeah. in that in that eleven ten mil- ten eleven minute uh, foregrounding scene, like we do see that when they find out that she's barren, that he can't, that they can't adopt, they are like. They're listless through their entire lives. Ed was lives. inconsolable, it says, yeah. Yeah, she, uh, had, also, she no longer had any passion for police work or housekeeping. <laughs> well, just as an aside, like, to paint that universe more, when they're in that scene and the doc is showing them the, imi- the image of that with just the biggest shit-eating yeah. grin while he's showing them how infertile she is, uh, like... It, yeah, that's a really good thing to point out. Um, funny and horrible. Uh, also, the... Uh, the reason why Ed wanted to have a kid, he says uh, in the opening, um, from Ed's point of view, there was too much beauty in the world uh, to just keep it between us. We had to add everybody, and every day that goes by without adding a, a critter, as he calls it, to the world, is one that he might later regret. And they're just sitting outside their trailer park, watching the, the desert sunset over this desolate waste. It's like a 15 second shot to and, adjust and the, the sun sunset. Sinks, and then there's a beat, and they're just sitting on lawn chairs in the darkness, and she goes... That was beautiful. <laughs> it's so funny and so heartwarming. I, man, I love this movie. Um, it, boy, that's I, I actually love this movie. Yeah, that's <laughs> really funny though. I mean, that scene in particular. I mean, it encapsulates everything we said. That car chase scene mm-hmm. because he goes back to his ways, getting the huggies, and then like almost to the point where he's so determined to like save the marriage or whatever despite all of that just chaos going on he goes for the huggies a second time yep. and like yeah the, the scene ends with uh they're driving by the huggies and he opens the door and reaches down to grab them and they make off with the huggies uh and they're successful um i think that sort of uh i'm sorry to, to get more broad again but all of the the Coen Brothers movies are united in a, a pessimism about um, the vol, vol, or the futility of the human condition. Um, I think all of every Coen Brothers movie I've seen, at least, holds that the thing that we're striving towards, the answers that we're trying to seek, the the um, people, the selfhood we're trying to um, self determine. Um, it's futile. It's impossible. Uh, we're we're essentially lying to ourselves about who we are, about what we're doing here, about our, our futures, and about the sort of um, 
landscape or narrative of, of human history and individual history. Um, those things are things that we lie about to ourselves because we have to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the difference is where the Coen brothers fall on the um, the ultimate, not validity, but uh, um, the point, or not the point, uh, man, I'm losing it. Um, about whether or not that's a good thing or something that's worth pursuing, despite being a lie, um, and the the consequences of um, what we do in the pursuit of this lie. Uh, that lie being both the American dream and the the idea of self determination or selfhood broadly. About the idea that we can be the people we want to be. Have I been picked up at all? Am I gone? He was, and in fact had been since the beginning of the recording. Okay, uh, after that shitload of fun, um, we're back. Harry's mic uh, shout out mid. Thanks, Harry. Mid that. It was recording. my fault. Not even it mid. Was all it wasn't podcast. even mid. It was before start. Yeah. Well, yeah, we don't know what this episode's going to look like anymore. Or sound well, it's like not going to look as much. Audio. Right. Thank you. We both. We both. I've been through a lot from today. <laughs> Same thing. Uh, but Harry, you were talking. Uh, yeah, I was rambling the, the about the death of these myths and the lies uh, yeah, that we tell just ourselves. That, like, I think all Coen Brothers movies are about how fundamentally the sort of um, human project of self determination uh, is a lie, um, and uh, and our institutions are a lie, and uh, the different Coen Brothers movies come down at different places on whether or not that lie is something that. Um, is a good thing or something that that exists to affect good in the world or if it leads to terrible consequences. I think it does plenty of both in all of their movies. Uh, I think this movie ultimately comes down optimistically on it where I think that that High and Ed wanting to be parents is fundamentally a good thing in this movie. Like their aspirations towards building a better life and, and their sort of vision for uh, a future where they have something worth leaving behind or something worth giving to somebody, those aspirations make them better people by the end of this movie. Um, just by virtue of wanting to be parents and wanting to be somebody who can give something to, to uh, a child um, and leave something behind um, makes them better. Is that in competition with their actual ability to do so then? Are they uh, limited by, like, not by desire or by intent, but by, like, capability i feel like that may be like raising arizona too because like right from the get-go the child gets home um junior comes home and then it's the snotes siblings who arrive like five minutes later and the movie is instead about not their cap like actual capability to be tender loving parents uh, who are responsible and good um but just like uh, confronting the fact that uh high and I add to an extent have a past that they need to overcome if they're going to make this work. It's about overcoming the past, right? Yeah, and, yes. and, and sort of about over overcoming the the person that you were to become the person you want to be, right? Mm-hmm. Like I high has to overcome his criminal past that takes many forms. It takes the forms of the Snotes and uh Leonard Smalls um in order to become the person that his wife wants him to be and that ultimately he wants to be uh, a father. Um <clears throat> Do, do you just I'm sorry to keep dude, like derailing but do you think that they do like effectively that most characters do overcome no but I don't think anybody does right I think that this movie um, 
unites all of the characters in that we're all fundamentally incapable of what we want to be, right? I like that's the farcical part, part yeah. right? Is that the the idea of what we want to be is hilarious because it's so out of step with what is. Do you think how do you reconcile the the fact that Leonard Smalls explodes in a bloody mist because um because High literally explodes him with grenades. Like is that is that not a triumph? Is that not an overcoming of his of his self, of his yeah, I think I think that it is right, yeah. um, and I, I think that Leonard Smalls is really interesting because he has the same tattoo as High, and he has a tattoo that says "My Mama Didn't Love Me," <laughs> and he was sold on the black market uh, as an unwanted orphan, mm-hmm. and so he is the sort of um, discarded child, and, and sort of the nightmare he represents is the nightmare of a child without a parent, um, and so. I, I don't know. I think that you could almost read High's defeating <laughs> Leonard, however that may be, as like commitment in a, in a strange way. Hmm. Uh, he's sort of like like overcoming this nightmare of what what will be if he can't overcome what he's going for. Yeah, if there's no, uh, if if like if the child would end up regretting missing those days or those moments of beauty, as Ed said in the beginning. Uh, Leonard is also hoist by his own petard. Literally, right? Um, do you want to talk about how he's destroyed? Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, yeah, so um, the climactic moment in this battle, and I guess the movie in general, um, High is uh, brought in close. I, like, Leonard Smalls is trying to squeeze the ever-loving life out of him. Um, and he gets tossed back. As he gets tossed back, High rips uh, a, a pin out of, or maybe a couple pins out of the grenades uh, that... Smalls has attached to his person. Um, Leonard Smalls is the best character in this movie because he employs the use of grenades, which are terribly underutilized in movies in general. This um, is a crusade of Cody's. Yeah, Leonard Cody's Smalls. Crusade. Leonard Smalls is the true hero uh, of this movie. Um, well, Leonard, Leonard Smalls and that bank teller who put the paint grenade in the bag. Oh, oh that's a good oh, twist. Two oh, oh, oh. grenades. A grenade of a different great color. Great point. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, since it's about grenades, I have to like it, but <laughs> you're on thin ice, bud. I didn't have a take on that. I was just saying the phrase. I, don't I know. know. You're looking at me now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think going off that, we should maybe talk about that bank heist scene a little bit. Totally. Because, I mean, it starts dynamically enough with them bringing Nathan Jr. into the bank because they don't want to leave him in the car. That's Gale and Evel yes. Snopes, right? Which is, it's interesting because after they find out um, that Nathan Jr. is worth $5,000, uh, which is the reward on the bounty that um, Nathan Sr. offered, they decide to take the uh, baby, Nathan Jr., but they immediately fall in love with him and decide that instead they're going to parent this baby. And everybody who comes into contact with this baby wants it, including even Glenn and Dot. Um, and so Nathan Jr. represents this uh, this thing that everyone wants, uh, and it's representative of a lot of things for a lot of different people. But, but the overarching idea is um, it's I don't know what I'm doing there. Uh, Here he it, was waving his arm around, like uh, a making fucking point. maniac. No, it was good. Uh, I wouldn't have said anything. Like a Looney Tune. <laughs> <laughs> like a um, Looney Tune. <laughs> uh, but but it, having the the child uh, will give people the life that they want. Is what I'm saying. I think. And so the fact that nobody ends up with the child except the rich family is is saying. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily if where it ends up is. 
I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Maybe you were, you were saying about the bank scene. Well, I mean, now that you're actually saying that, I don't know. Maybe that child <laughs> is like an embodiment of like new opportunity. I mean, of, of like a new future that you can make for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know, all of the like sort of duos kind of flirt with that, but then eventually find that it's just not the right time and place for that sort of thing. It's, it's a chance to to make uh, a person who can see you the way you want to be seen, right? Uh, because as you bring up this child, you'll be able to um, manifest your best qualities, and they'll come to see you only as those qualities, which will then impart those qualities onto you. I mean, that's the mm. sort of fake it till you make it sort of approach to parenting that this movie wants so uh, desperately, yeah. everybody in it. The baby is a MacGuffin. <clears throat> it, honestly, yeah. Um, but yeah, Stunned so. silence from the crowd. I had no wordplay to offer, I was thinking. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, me too. They na- they had five kids. They could. Well, the baby's name McGuffin. is not McGuffin. <laughs> like Mac. Mac Guffin. Guffin is a middle See name. See what we did there. I'm the Cone Brothers. Mr. Arizona. Guffin is my father. Please call me Mac. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Ah, uh, the bank scene. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I I like the bank scene because if we talk about like the the car chase scene as being one of those like defining scenes that could in itself define raising Arizona, I think the bank heist is a pretty close second because like it it may not feature our our titular high and Ed, but like it features another prominent duo who are you know looking for their place, looking to get their their piece of the world here and just all the crazy hijinks that unfold with that starting with again bringing a baby into the bank heist yeah. maybe we should set it up uh, midway through the film um, uh, not Glenn Gale and Evel Snotes who are two for, uh, prison breakouts uh, they're brothers too I believe right yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. the Snotes yep. um, they get a hold of the baby uh, this is after the fight scene that I mentioned where high scrapes his knuckles on the ceiling I just Keep that it's shot, so it's funny. So funny, like the arc. That well, he and he through. like yelps. He's like, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they take the baby, and they're intending to um, sell him uh, either back to back the family to Nathan. Or, I think. Yeah, yeah they want to get the the ransom money, as they call it. Yeah, the twenty five thousand dollars that he's put up. That's right. Um, and they come to eventually uh, uh, find a love for this baby, just incidentally, sort of as an odd couple type. Uh, and end up um, planning to... Uh, they tried to sell high on a bank heist that they're going to execute now with the baby still in the car. Yeah, they still go through with the bank heist, which is important, right? Like, they're not changing as people. They right. just now also want to impart their bank heisty wisdom onto, <laughs> onto their onto, child. Onto Nathan Jr. And they fuck up at every turn. They leave the baby on top of the car, like, twice mm-hmm. <laughs> over the course of this movie and don't notice it till they're a mile down the road. But... Yeah, as you were saying. Which those scenes lead to a large portion of the screaming that happens in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, they, they bring the they bring the baby into the, the bank heist. Yep. Uh they tell everybody to freeze and then drop down, and then they have a, a great scene with Rusty Lee uh as the Hayseed who asks them, Well, which is it, young fella? Do you want us to freeze or do you want us to <laughs> drop down? Because if um, I were to freeze I couldn't then drop down yeah. because then I would be in motion. <laughs> Well, and, and then and then that creates more comedy down the way, right? Because they freak out because they're like, "Oh shit, where are the tellers?" And they're like, "We're down on the ground, <laughs> just on the other side of the counter." Right? <laughs> it's a very, very fucking funny scene. It's it's a f- super funny movie, right? Yeah. Like, we should probably, yeah, man. It is it is a direct comedy, and I think it was that more than anything that caught me off guard because I'm used to Coen Brothers films being 
maybe not straightforward, but at least like predictably a tone in many respects. But the fact that this is like leaning almost one hundred percent into comedy with like the more subtle undertones sort of bubbling underneath of it, rather than like almost the opposite way around, where they would spike it usually with comedy or have it be like a factor of the movie. But having that be like the screaming, beating heart of this movie, being just funny things happening, um, it. I wasn't really ready for it, I don't think. I, I do like it. I do like it quite a bit. I think I like it more now talking about it than I did when I was watching it last night. But it just it was not something that I think I was ready to really process. Yeah, I, I definitely wasn't either because I've, I haven't seen a whole lot of Coen Brothers movies. I've seen... I know I've seen Burn After Reading. I saw that like a year ago. Um, Inglorious Bastards. That's Tarantino. That is Tarantino. Well, that just goes to show. <laughs> uh, don't have much of a of a Cohen brother. A river th- runs through it. Citizen Kane, <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Oh shit! You, you already went the old route. <laughs> All right. Okay. I think that I know. It's, uh, that, that's okay. pre- that's super fair. Super fair mix up with Inglorious Bastards. But uh, but uh, to go into what I was saying, because I watched uh, the other Cohen brothers movie before this, I was like, okay, get my brain ready. Need to really mm-hmm. soak up this stuff. And then I'm watching it, and I'm like, I feel like not great because I'm sitting with my laptop in front of me waiting to take notes I'm like uh 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 <laughs> what do I do? uh this is funny funny stuff <laughs> Effie funny yeah that's um, really fascinating yeah because yeah, like I, I'd seen this movie a lot so yeah, I knew what to expect I think the fact that your lens of having seen it quote unquote a million times is like heavily influencing your ability to like parse sure. it the way you were yeah because it, it feels really realized to me um mm-hmm. as like a, a movie about what it means to start a family and, and like the sort of trials and tribulations that lead to somebody being ready to be in a family mm-hmm. or not be in a family um i really like that arc of um like cody said self-actualization through um aspiration towards family life that is that's a super great insight yeah um i think it's it's uh it's great that this movie can um both skewer the idea of the nuclear family um as aspirational or possible while also um holding out hope for the idea that at least the aspiration towards it and what that aspiration represents might be fundamentally um worthwhile Mm -hmm. or worth um pursuing because it might create better people in an interesting way, um, it might be a little bit heteronormative for my tastes in that way. Um, but uh, I think that that the sort of nature versus nurture argument in this movie, nurture wins out in a way that I like um, mm-hmm. because it, it it skewers the idea of fundamental criminality as ridiculous. Um, and of recidivism <clears throat> in general, right? Yeah, and, and the system of rehabilitation, right? Like the idea of rehabilitation as portrayed in the american penal system is silly i think in the first monologue he says uh i don't know if the um this this criminal justice system is for rehabilitation or revenge but i think revenge is the only thing that makes sense to me about it uh which is a great line uh um no i yeah uh i like what this film was able to communicate about everything that's been discussed up to now knowing full well that it's pretty early in the Cohen's filmography. Um, one thing, I mean, there are a lot of Cohen tropes that, uh, like, we can kind of attach to these movies by this point. One of my favorites is the whole, like, the heroes or protagonists, like, kind of stumbling across the finish line by the end of it. Like, the path isn't always straight. Um, it's, like, very meandering. But in the end, Nathan Jr. gets back into the Arizona household. Um, and not only that, but Nathan Arizona Sr. 
like justified but like kind of abruptly you know he kind of pivots a little bit and like has that moment of grace um which is just like a nice neat ribbon on like the mcdonough's arc yeah in in another movie you could see like them returning the baby being the climax Mm -hmm. but in this movie it's uh you know uh it's it's mel gibson exploding in the desert and then after that, they return the baby. I kind of wish Mel Gibson would actually explode in a desert. In a desert, yeah. I'd be into that. Just throw him in the desert and watch him explode like Squidward <laughs> falling off of his bike <laughs> down that cliff. I <laughs> mean, he's already wow. exploded. I don't know if you've heard those voicemails, but he definitely exploded. Yeah. I, I've kind of lost touch with Mel Gibson's That's uh, probably a good thing. Yeah. Personal and, he's and terrible. public lives. Fuck you, Mel Gibson. Fuck uh, you, James Woods. I, I'm, really, yes. I'm really glad that um, Mel Gibson was part of making Mad Max a thing because we would not have maybe my favorite movie of all time Mad Max Fury Road without yeah. it so yeah I am I am <laughs> masturbating under the table right now <laughs> holy Christ do you want me to do it on Tom, top Tom, of the table really doing which is this table used to be black now that we've fixed Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ now that we have an, a delicate table situation that's even more impressive so <laughs> uh, excuse me I'm just gonna grab another donut <laughs> um that's right Cody good god <laughs> Uh, shout I, out to the transitions in this episode. The transitions to, are very good. Shout out to jokes your guests don't get. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> Indeed, I wow. thought you were going to say transitions in the movie, and I want to talk about oh, maybe okay. my favorite shot yeah. in the movie. Just check this out for a transition. Wow, hit it! Um, hit it! There was hit it. In, in the in the in the prologue uh, when. One of, one of the, uh, I think, strongest framings of the movie is when Ed is taking uh, High's mugshot, and she says, turn to the right, turn, and like every time he's brought in, it's turn yeah. to the right, and then he's laying in bed thinking about her, and you see a flash, and then he turns like yep. to his right, and like camera, or screen left, and yeah. just a flash brings us to the next scene. That was the best fucking thing. I go yeah. nuts for that shit in movies, <laughs> when it's like breaking the fourth wall with its right. editing. It's just great. I love that, too. I never even noticed that. It's it's pretty early on and it's not super like pronounced. It's just like a very quick moment. It's a super Coheny transition. Yeah, you would like Blood Simple a lot. I, think. I did like Blood Simple. There, a lot. there are some Don't incredible. Don't me, Harry. I've seen that movie. Yeah, there are. Yeah, some incredible transitions. <laughs> Sorry, in that Nathan Junior. If we what <laughs> what I infantilized him. I called him Nathan Junior. <sighs> there are some great transitions <sighs> in this movie. Uh, and Blood Simple. And Blood Simple. If, if we do an episode on it, peeling back the curtain. We, we don't know yet. Okay, we're not going to do it. No, I mean we can certainly. Okay, yeah, we don't need to waste too. time talking about it. Shop talk. Could, though. Yeah. The director said maybe. Shop pod talk. <laughs> um, are we talking about? I, unless anybody else has like substantive points, we could just talk about other shit we liked in this I movie. I should just bring up the the dream again um, and oh, yeah. how that completes the. Uh, McDonough's arcs too, right? Where like I think I might have made this point already, but who, who knows? It's been but who heard it? Three million years, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, High has two dreams, uh, both about the future. In his first one, he sees flames and apocalypse, and in the second one, he sees a bright future for himself. And the change there is his aspiration toward being a family, and and the sort of hard one. Um, actual desire that he possesses to stay with his wife and to have a family which he was sort of uh fighting with throughout this movie between his his dual nature as a a criminal and a wannabe family man yeah it it sort of speaks in a way to like the two challenges he must overcome to a prove that he's not just a criminal he's got to explode mel gibson in the desert and he's got to be able to prove to himself and to everybody else that he, well, not maybe to everybody else, but to himself that he could be a father, that he could be a husband, like a reliable, stable person uh, in somebody's life. 
those two different dreams sort of illustrate both of those um, aspirations. And in a way I hadn't thought about before you just mentioned it. You leaned back really, really far as if you weren't going to talk again for a long time. But then I came back. I'm oh, right God. here. How did I do always it? Been it was here. me all along, Austin. That's a meme from the internet. What's what? An uh, internet meme? I got a few questions. <laughs> um, I've got a few awkward transitions like this one. Um, Hit it. <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Mark really, of a good transition. Uh, Hit it. <laughs> Um, the thing I'm going to talk about is actually kind of uncomfortable. We can cut this if we want to. I don't know if it's worth bringing up. Um, there's this, like, very... It's one of the first impressions we get of this oh, movie. Oh, yeah, this sucks. Um, it, really uncomfortable. Um, there's a... Uh, when High gets... We, the first time we see High get brought to prison, there's kind of that, like, group therapy-type session. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the um, male inmates uh, describes, like, feeling um, menstrual pains. And that's, like, played off for laughs. Um, I just wanted to put it out there that the Cohen brothers are not in any sort of position to comment on that or you know, much less use that as a joke. It's also the specific body type and person that they chose is part of the joke. He's a big, uh, deep-voiced black guy. Good point. Uh, I think the only black person in this movie. Um, an ongoing problem for the Coen brothers. There's a significant. I was I was sitting on like that was in my notes early on, and I was sitting on that the whole time. Like, should I bring this up? Absolutely. Or? Okay. Yeah. yeah, we've we've broached that topic in the past, especially it's I'm, it's coming to the foreground when we're talking about the Coens because it feels like in a lot of their movies. My mom used to have this phrase whenever like I would want to play a video game that had something bad in it, like it has blood or it has violence or it has swear words or whatever. And she'd be like, no, you can't play that. It has this. And I'm like, it only has a little bit of this. And she's like, well, the next time I make brownies, I'm putting a little bit of dog shit in your brownies. <laughs> and would you still eat them? Yo. Holy shit. Yeah. Your mom's awesome. Your mom's incredible. She's a pretty pretty great person. Um, but it, it comes back to that, like, how much am I going to let shout that Shout out to Jason's mom. Yeah, I don't think she has or will listen to this. She's not big on podcasts. But, uh, yeah, if everybody should know, all 25 of you should know. <laughs> I mean, you can just cut this good. sound bite for her, give it to her next Mother's really Day. Can, like, yeah, um, yeah it, it, uh, it's a problem for them, it, sort of representing any sort of uh, marginalized people without pejoratives or funnies or, you know, poking fun at that person and that type of person. It's really rough for them. Yeah, well, and especially to do that so early on, that kind of, like, it set a, a sort of miniature tone in my head when I saw that. Totally. I, was, I was like, uh, okay, I... Is like, this, what's this movie getting? Is, is this, this going to continue? Yeah. Like, an hour and a half of this? It's a complete non-sequitur. It's a huge problem for, I, in my opinion, a lot of, like, farcical or would-be subversive humor is <clears throat> poking fun, punching down at marginalized people, when in fact, what could be less subversive than that? What could be less, um, I don't know, edgy? It's, or it's the lowest hanging fruit that comedy has ever known, is making and, and fun of, of Fundamentally about reinforcing the sort of um, societal standards that this movie is supposed to be a piss take about. So, like, fuck that, right? Like, it's a direct contradiction of this movie's express purpose. Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, it's this... I I didn't like the tone it set because not only, obviously, what it was was kind of gross, but it's like, oh, this is prison where, like, these, like, uh, I I don't know how you would say it in less flattering, but it's like, oh, this is prison where 
ideally this is a place of reform, but in a lot of places, and especially like popular media, it's like, oh, this is where the dregs of society are. Mm-hmm. And to see that sort of dig in like the dregs of society, it's like, yeah, yeah. no. It's it really like the That's fact. That's a really good point. The fact alone that, like I said, it's a non sequitur and it does not come back, it is irrelevant to the rest of the plot. It is just used for a quick gag. It's like the that, second joke of the movie, and too. And that's, that's super telling that, like, they absolutely did not need that. Like, mm. that it is just, that it was just there as fodder. And it's like, no. Why Why would you do that in a, in any type of movie where you're wanting people to sympathize with And there are so many good prison jokes in this movie. It's weird to say good prison jokes. But but jokes that sort of humanize the experience of When we, when we didn't have prawns, we ate sand. Yeah. We ate what? You ate we what? Ate sand. We ate sand. You ate sand? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's just like a beat, and then we're on. To, that's like it's so funny, and like that comes right on the heels of this terrible joke. And it's like, why couldn't we just had that? Yeah, yeah. S- speaking of that, I mean, kind of another segue into another part of the movie, I guess. Well, it happened in that particular scene, but there's a couple of parts where Ode to Joy shows up in this movie. Oh yeah, like a, a hillbilly bluegrass version of Ode to Joy. Yeah, well, there's that, but like. Um, in that in that prison bunk scene, uh, Nicolas Cage is humming it, and then at the end of the movie, it's also playing. Mm-hmm. And I was just mm. curious what people thought about that. I didn't even I, I didn't even pick up on that. Okay, I did pick up on that, but like deep down, I just in my psyche. I'm just curious if you guys thought like there was anything to that, maybe, or if it was just sort of a carry-through that they used. He hums that in prison, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like it's, very early on. That's an interesting part, because prison in this movie is portrayed as really um, toothless and as something that, that um, is comforting. Uh, Nicolas Cage refers to it as a comfort multiple times. Um, Gail and Evel Snotes are not concerned about being captured and put back into prison, and in the end of the movie, they literally crawl back into prison from whence they came, and uh, <laughs> Nicolas Cage's character hides says that uh, they weren't ready for society yet and uh, forgive the uh, gross metaphor but like it's prison in this movie is, is womb like right like it's it's a place for the the way that they frame it uh, in the in the sort of classical farcical way is that it's for people who aren't developed enough to be part of society which again is why it sucks so much that uh, they made the jokes that they did. Yeah. But, but in this movie prison is a place for um, specifically like man children who aren't ready to accept what it means to be a man and instead sort of like have this cyclical journey of returning to the place from whence they came because they can't evolve. Um, and it's interesting that Ode to Joy plays into that, right? Where like he's he's happy about being in prison because like it's a place where he's taken care of. Um, I think at, at one point Gail and Evel go, uh, we're, we're going to continue this spree until either we're caught or we're captured either way we're set for life right that's (laughs) well and that's what's that's what's kind of fucked up because what that made me think of was like how homelessness can be treated because a lot of like in a lot of places homeless people will just go and commit crimes because if they do they're in prison where they get three meals and a bed like so that that was where that spoke to me Mm. a lot to say about the carceral state in um raising arizona no kidding uh we could bounce back into things that we definitively did like. If anybody had anything else, to close that they did this not. out, I think this is probably a pretty long episode now, right? It's we can cut this probably one ten or so. I don't know. Oh, that's not so bad. Yeah, really not. Um, 
I uh, well actually first I'll ingrain this movie a little bit into the trial of cinematic universe. Um, did y'all pick up on the McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Uh, yes. Yeah. The, the, the frog bumping his ass. The frog bumping his Hell ass. Hell yeah! Uh, Thank shout you out to Nathan Arizona Senior. Um, it's during the in, like scene where we first meet him uh, and meet him in his home. I yeah, guess we yeah. see him on on TV on, right earlier. Uh, but it's a great. It's like a weirdly non Cohen, very um, Wes Anderson shot. Of like this almost toy everything. Box. It's like oh, 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 uh, yeah, like a toy box shot of their yeah, living like, room. Yeah, like very linear. Everybody's mm-hmm. front facing, uh, and he's screaming on the phone uh, at one of his business partners because he's taking some time off to be a dad, and he uh, he yells that line about uh, if you have a frog with head wings, he wouldn't bump his ass a hopping. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, good. McCabe and Mrs. Great. Miller is really great. So is Wayne's it's a World. Really great movie. You know I, what I thought? Uh, Robert Robert Altman directed that Popeye live action film. Yeah, oh my that God, was so that's bad. Right. Mm-hmm. I never I never saw Shelley that. Shelley Duvall was in it. Yeah, I, it's on my watch list now because I want to see how how somebody who made something as good as McCabe and Mrs. Miller could make something as bad as that. <laughs> Evidently bad as that. I don't know. Man, I was thinking about Popeye recently because Aaron tweeted a video about like what and like the history of animation and like the casting of Robin Williams, how that just like changed the landscape. By uh, Lin- Lindsay Ellis, I think that is. Yes, I watched that same video when he tweeted that, and yeah. that's actually where I got the whole. There were more Popeye sequences of Popeye in that video than I would have expected. And then I it actually it. Popeye. Shoutouts to Aaron. Yeah, thanks for being here, Aaron. <coughs> yeah, and no, Aaron, that's enough. That's that's right there. Um, oh, the other part I really liked was, um, well, I liked a lot of things. The one thing that really sort of tickled me was near the end in the fight where um, uh, Leonard Smalls whips a knife at High, who is holding a plank of wood. The knife uh, gets stuck in the plank, and then Nicolas Cage gives like a really classic cagey and underwhelming, like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to call out the... During the car chase scene, just after Ed picks up High uh, outside, like the back of another grocery store or wherever he is, uh, she goes. I was mentioning like her cartoonishly overblown reaction shots, and one of those occurs where she's—I forget what she's even yelling—but like her mouth is all sorts of weird shapes, and her eyes are just manic. It's like hilarious to see such like a small human being having such big like physical emotions. It's so fucking. This movie's a cartoon. It it really fucking it's a roadrunner. It's cartoon. a roadrunner cartoon. The truth uh, is out there. I think I'm going to start fading uh, in the music now. I I have some great. I just like I think uh, this movie has so many great lines uh, that you could just recite. Like Oh Brother Where Art Thou? There are so many one-liners in this movie that are just fantastic. Um, I think this is sort of a gross one to bring up, so I apologize, but. Uh, her insides were a rocky place in which my seed could find no purchase. It was like Classic. a really funny uh, way of describing that, sad as it and is. overlaid on top of a shot of them at the adoption agency. Yeah, or and like Eric doctor. pointed out, the doctor making this like rictus grin at them. <laughs> and and High is just completely emotionless and <laughs> Ed is weeping right. on his shoulder. And Ed is really emotional in this movie. Um, I don't think that it's... I, it doesn't read as terribly sexist to me, if only because this movie is so good at skewering masculinity. Um, a lot of the dynamic between Ed and uh, Gail and Evel are Gail and Evel sort of like 
asking Hyde to man up and show uh, Ed who wears the pants in this family uh, when it's obvious that Ed is much more intelligent than Hyde and does wear the pants in the family, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but those those read as so obviously parody to me that they don't come off as sexist because only these two morons who uh, escaped from prison and are going to go back to prison would uh, sort of frame this going on this way and they're they're obviously trying to exploit high um and high sort of uh um going along with it is portrayed as his weakness and so they sort of do a good job of of skewering the idea that that there are traditional gender roles in that way mm-hmm. in my opinion yeah um i kind of felt the same way the like we touched on how ed goes like a little baby crazy um like towards the like the actual baby napping um that didn't like I didn't like that for mm-hmm. that kind of reason where like I like I don't really feel like Ed's character is really being done justice but that was like also very like intentional and all things considered like pretty funny um but it I don't know like I did anybody think that overstepped I think it like was towing like uh, like a very fine line I think it worked but I think kind of like Harry was saying because it just kind of like throws some of that gender norm stuff out the window a little right. bit. Yeah. I never that never occurred to me personally. Sure. But now that you're saying that I could absolutely and see it, where that comes in. And we're all dudes, right? So like if, right, yeah. if a woman had a had an issue with the way that this movie portrays women, that would seem extremely valid to me. Not that mm-hmm. I would have the right to deem it valid totally. or invalid. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking specifically of when high is actually like kidnapping the child and ed won't let him in the car like i to me <laughs> but, that was like peak yeah like peak hysterics but, but like but part of that is also how holly hunter sells it so well right where she's just like this very stubborn very um resolute person uh yeah. just like she is an old brother or art though she has a very similar role in that where she counts her she says her piece and counts to three uh i just love holly hunter's stubbornness yeah. and so maybe that makes the scene work better for me right like she's stubborn in all the ways that high is like I don't want to say complacent, yeah, but like, pliant. like yeah, yeah uh, unorganized. I I think that the reason that it didn't come off as overtly sexist or gendered in a negative way to me was that like they both want this. Ed and Ed and High both want the same thing. They both want a child. They both want it for maybe different reasons or like overlapping reasons. There's a Venn diagram of reasons they want a baby, um, but they're not treated as like valid and baby crazy. They're treated as valid and valid, like yeah. both good reasons that they might both want a child so I, I think and if anything high's reasoning is more ridiculous than hers yeah, right to overcome his innate uh criminality right. and recidivism yeah th- to, to that point like i think in a lesser film it would have been like here's the main character here's his motivation for wanting a baby and then his wife is also baby crazy isn't she funny it's i like, guess it's not that no for sure i think that's a really good point now that i'm thinking about it like where this uh scene is coming from like she ed is not letting high into the car until he comes back with a child he is immediately he comes out of the Arizona household. He had just come from like just like parenting on steroids. He was like parenting five kids at once and he like was like tired. Uh like he was overwhelmed and her response to that is like no, you get back up there and like be a parent. I don't know, maybe that's Still like a toddler or whatever. Yeah, maybe that's an optimistic reading, but I don't know. That's Again, yeah, we're all just white guys in a room. I don't know. Children. I think that like <laughs> 
it's a it's like a humanist movie, right? In a way that a lot of Coen Brothers movies maybe either aren't or are in more complicated ways. But like these are two characters that you really want to root for because they've been through so much and they're still trying to be the people they want to be. Yeah. Um. And so I I guess I mean humanist in that way, right? Where it's like these are these are people that have been sort of um, marginalized by the system, marginalized by biology and the prejudices of others, <laughs> and they're still like going for it and like they're. They're uh, committing a terrible crime, but they're they're committing it for reasons that we're so sympathetic to, and that they don't have any malice at any point in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody does really, except for Leonard. Um, and he is just made of malice. <laughs> yes, he is malice itself. He's Embodied. The, the horseman of the apocalypse. Um, but that's what kills him in the end, right? Is being ridiculous enough to wear. <laughs> several grenades on his person at all times <laughs> and then he gets blowed up like the end of leon the professional <laughs> <laughs> exactly damn uh yeah i one thing that i wanted to bring up and it's very small was anybody reminded of um the specifically with the lines spoken by nick cage reminded of uh the writing in wild at heart like specifically, the, I almost thought he was going to bring up a line about like his jacket, and now it's a symbol of his individuality and stuff. Just like really over the top, bizarre, like uh, faux educated type speak that like is just clearly he read it on the back of a magazine somewhere Man, type of thing. This is a snakeskin jacket. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of my favorite. Did I ever tell you about how it's monologues like a of my individuality and, and my belief in personal freedom? <laughs> Uh, it just it just rang super true to me. It's like these characters are nearly the same in in writing anyway. Like, yeah, that's and two of Nick Cage's best performances. Yeah, two really strong ones. Yeah. What? Oh, that seemed like a less enthused uh, proclamation. Well, I haven't I watched know. enough Nick Cage to okay, be like, oh, fair. this isn't the top five. Like, okay. I haven't seen. Everyone should see Moonstruck. I haven't it's seen Moonstruck. One of my favorite movies. I haven't seen Lord of War. I haven't seen the Dragon one. The wizard one? Harry, Wasn't there one with him? The Sorcerer's Harry Potter. Apprentice? The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Oh. Was, that, was that with Jay Baruchel? Yes. Okay. Your set was. Hello, was Dave. The worst Jay Baruchel I've ever done. <laughs> that was pretty good. If we just There's pitched it up Burke. a little bit. Do I you think we're get, all pretty wanna, close to Jay Baruchel as it is. Uh, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> you want to give me another bit, Jay Baruchel, in that exact same tone of voice, and I will just pitch it up so it actually sounds like Jay Baruchel? Oh, sure. Um, in the end, we were all really raising Arizona, weren't we? All right, thank it's you like very much. I'm in me. the room with him. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for listening to Try Love. I am Jason. I am Mac Guffin. I'm Harry. And I'm your special guest, Eric. And thank you for listening to Try Love today. <laughs>